With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and thank you for joining us today for Live Dharma Sunday. Please note that if you have called in to listen to today's broadcast, that all lines have been placed on mute to avoid background interference. If you're listening from any of our Bright Dawn sites, note that it is not necessary to call in. You may have to wait a second or two for the loading and buffering process to complete, but if there is still no audio, please refresh your page. For more information about Bright Dawn and its activities and links to our social media sites, please visit brightdawn.org. Once again, thank you for listening to Live Dharma Sunday and enjoy the talk. Sunday for September 8th, 2019. Koyo Kubose here. So very, very glad you joined us. Well, this is the time of year when it's a new school year begins. You know, uh, some schools, of course, uh, start late August. Okay. Um, in the educational field, my thought this morning was that, you know, as a teacher, former teacher of in <clears throat> college and and as a student, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there's an excitement of a new year, new faces, new learning. Um, and this is this is a, well, I guess it's a, you can call it a fringe benefit of the, uh, being in the educational field. And uh, it's the same for uh, our Bright Dawn Center here. Uh, we're a religious educational organization. Okay. We're not really a, a church or temple. Uh, we don't have a, a congregation per se. Okay. Um, we could be called a lay seminary. Isn't that a good term? Lay seminary. That's our main program is our our lay ministry program, you know. And that's kind of a, I don't know if you want to use a, a provocative term. You could say this is revolutionary in a way. The concept of a lay seminary or a lay ministry program, you know. Usually there's a, 
big gap between the clergy and a congregation. And that's an interesting dynamic there. Because in most temples, uh, you see the, the they're run by a board. They're run by the lay people. And they hire, they pay clergy, minister, priest, okay, whatever the term may be in different uh, approaches. And that's kind of... Um, <laughs> Uh, leads to an interesting relationship because your spiritual religious leader, teacher, is also your employee. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, um, what I want to say is um, the, the creativity in teaching is another fringe benefit where uh, for myself, and maybe I'm speaking just for myself, but when I was teaching in higher education, uh, even if it was an introductory psychology course or a course that I taught many times, uh, I, I never taught a course the same way twice. You know, even though I, I wanted to in a way because it's it's less work, okay? But it's just only natural to to want to try new things. You might you might uh, use a new textbook, or even if you use the old textbook, your lectures. I knew I know <clears throat> it might depend on the material, perhaps uh, the course material. I remember a friend of mine who taught uh, in the city college in Chicago area and. Uh, I don't know how many years he taught, but uh, he said he got kind of stuck in a rut where he had taught the same course all the time. He would come into lecture and he would say to the class, where did I leave off last time? And they would say something, and then he'd turn to uh, his his lecture notes or whatever, and it was the same thing year after year. And he, and he got kind of uh, tired of being in that rut, and he went, and he became an occupational therapist. He went back to school. And, okay. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but for me, I don't know why, but I, I could never teach the same thing. I would always be, you know, fooling around with trying this, trying that, or adding this, or, or uh, in terms of being, you know, teaching. Uh, uh, so I was thinking about that today as, Today is our start of our new term for our lay ministry program. And uh, we number our, our uh, lay ministry groups that start the, start the two-year program. And this will be the 13th group, a <laughs> special group. They're going to have their orientation, their first session today. Seven members. Uh, <clears throat> Starting uh, a new adventure from all all over the country, seven strangers getting together with a common purpose to deepen their own spiritual journey, huh? and they form sort of a cyber sangha, a mini cyber sangha. Okay, every Sunday 
they they have posted on a website, uh, Ning website, right on Sangha, our online Sangha, and and it has all kind of groups on there. So they're, they are LM13, and they post their weekly written reports, and uh, they read each other's reports, and then they comment on what stood out for them, what helps them, you know. And also we have a, a our past lay ministers. We have over... Well, this is the 13th group. The number 12 is going through it now. They're current, okay? Uh, so 11 groups have gone through, and it's been about this. Uh, to do what we want to do, we have to limit the number of students. And uh, But still, and we have over 60 right now, okay, since the 11 groups have gone through. And so we have a lot of lay ministry. We have a lot of... Uh, well, you might call them <laughs> a bench or, you know, <laughs> uh, resources. Okay, and so uh, <clears throat> we we solicit volunteers to host, serve as a, a, a host for the current groups, and we have a curriculum, and the hosts ho- we have different LM hosts for the different courses. Okay, and these. Host facilitators okay, uh, <clears throat> help to to uh, uh, manage the the logistics of the course and of the sessions. Okay, saying who's next to give their oral report and so forth. And then at after the end of the after all the participants have given their oral reports and their comments on the other. Uh, their fellow participants' written reports and other comments and so forth. It's it's a very dynamic, changing situation. Like, is there, you know, they're all talking and uh, they could see each other on the computer screen. We use a visual conferencing uh, <clears throat> program. And uh, uh, after the, all the reports, then the host talks about what what how he what stood out for him in that session based upon hearing the oral reports and having written re- read the written reports and he's not a teacher really and i think this is another unique feature of our lay ministry program okay uh <clears throat> we call him a host facilitator uh what his main job is to serve as a role model for how to be a student. Okay. So he doesn't comment on, he doesn't teach his group anything. He's not, okay, you know. Uh, what's the difference between a teacher and a student? You know, I'm, a nice saying is, you want to learn something, teach it. And that's really true. Okay. Or another nice phrase is, our program is about how to uh, perfect one's studentship. Okay? It's not say, oh, I, I'm a student and I'm going to become a teacher through this program. Oh, I graduated commencement and now I'm a teacher and I'm going to teach. Okay? I know things that the students don't know and I'm going to just transfer all, all my notes to the students' notes. Okay? No. 
So I tell them, well, if you're going to be a host facilitator, you actually are doing the same thing you did as a student. You're looking at what the material that's being presented. You see, what stands out for me? What, you know, my, my, the, the mental set, the attitude is, hey, I want to learn. I want to deepen my own spiritual path. Okay. And uh, uh, teachings are all around us, and it, it develops a certain kind of attitude, okay, about life, how you live every day, fresh new day. Huh? Uh, well, really, a beginner's mind, you know, <laughs> not the expert's mind. In the expert's mind, there's not very many choices. Very things are very limited. But in the beginner's mind. So many possibilities, so many. Ah, that's great. Well, I want to introduce our uh, guest lay minister to give us a Dharma glimpse today. Uh, he's Alex Kakuyo. Uh, he went through our program as part of uh, LM10, and he resides in Ohio. So let us hear from Alex Kakuyo. Hello. The title of today's Dharma Glimpse is Bonsai Trees and the Art of Non-Attachment. The Japanese art of bonsai originated from the Chinese practice of Penjing, starting in the 6th century. Buddhist monks journeyed to China, and during the cultural exchange that took place, they learned about container plantings. Over time, the Japanese Buddhists blended the use of container plants with daily life to create bonsai, which focuses on creating an idealized miniature tree in an indoor setting. This is done through the use of cultivation techniques like pruning, leaf trimming, and defoliation. My first introduction to bonsai came through the Kwanum School of Zen. Popsa Link Roads grew bonsai trees when I practiced at the Indianapolis Zen Center. I always admired them, but I never thought that I'd grow one myself. That changed, however, when I realized that Enzo, my cat, was hell-bent on ripping Sifu, my money tree, into tiny pieces. I thought I solved the problem by taking my tree to work and placing him on my desk, but that presented another issue. Money trees can grow up to 10 feet tall if they're properly cared for, and there's no way HR was going to approve a 10-foot tall tree towering over my workstation, so... If Sifu was going to survive, he needed to remain small. Enter bonsai. I used poles and cords to shape the tree branches, scissors to trim the leaves, and my inner wisdom to decide exactly what's needed in each moment. If too many leaves are cut away, Sifu will look sickly. If his branches are pulled in the wrong direction, he'll look unnatural. The problem is complicated by the fact that technically... Sifu isn't one tree. Rather, he's five trees that were planted together in one pot. This is a common practice with money trees as the number five is considered lucky in Chinese culture. Eventually, the various trees will merge into a single trunk, but until that happens, they'll compete with each other for sunlight. If left to their own devices, they'd eventually crowd each other out, and most of them would die. So, pruning must be done regularly, and firm direction must be given. That's what bonsai requires, and that's what life demands. 
If C in order for Sifu to live, he must give up his attachments time and time again. Human life works in exactly the same way. We do what we want, when we want, how we want, under the false pretense that we can enjoy freedom without enduring consequences. But this is folly. Like a bonsai tree, we suffer if we grow in every direction, chase after every delight. Instead, we must work to grow only in the right directions and prune ourselves of every attachment that causes harm. This is the purpose of Buddhist ethical training. The precepts are scissors that cut harmful actions from our lives. The Eightfold Path is wire and rope that straightens our branches, helping us move towards the light. Like a skilled bonsai master, Buddhism will strip us of everything that hinders our spiritual growth. But it can only do that if we're willing to let go. You must be willing to lose some leaves, trim some branches, and experience a bit of pain in order to reach our full potential. So, this practice is not for the faint of heart. It takes strength to practice non-attachment. It takes courage to prune our spiritual selves. But if we can find it within us to obey the precepts and walk the Eightfold Path, then we'll be rewarded with a deep and abiding peace. May this Dharma glimpse be a benefit to all sentient beings. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Wow, you know, this topic, as I was listening, I scribbled down, you know, different uh, memories or associations and things, that, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot um, with regard to bonsai, flower arrangement. Um, my mom uh, taught it. She, uh, you know, uh, Japanese culture, <clears throat> when a person turns 60 years old, in terms of stages of life, I guess, uh, <clears throat> at 60 years of age is a special birthday, and uh, <clears throat> Japanese is called uh, Kanreki, and uh, the person, the birthday person, wears a red hat and a red vest, and and it, and I guess 60 was considered a time when you're freed up from uh, family obligations and uh, you know maybe you maybe it's retirement like huh? uh, you you don't have so many responsibilities and so it's like being reborn okay uh, you know start start new projects and new life directions and things like this that's the sort of the idea. Behind Kaneki, okay, uh, and uh, you get youthful again. You got a new baby, a new life, that kind of idea. And so when my dad, Reverend Gyomi Kubosa, turned sixty, he decided to go back to uh, Japan and go to the uh, Buddhist University and get his master's degree, okay, um, from Otani University, the Buddhist College, huh? in his denomination of Dodo Shinshu Buddhism, and they stayed there five years. Uh, <clears throat> he and my mom, okay, uh, they went to Kyoto, Japan, and uh, stayed five years. Uh, and during that time that he was studying Buddhism and so forth, my mom became a, a 
Channel U T teacher, and she became bonsai teacher too. She took these classes, and uh, you know, very classical, traditional Japanese aesthetic arts, and of course, Buddhism, a dominant part of the Japanese culture, influenced the aesthetics, and you know, uh, this is um, uh, and, and in Chicago here. Uh, in the Western, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, bonsai teachers. Okay, they have little groups uh, that, and they they learn how to. Uh, my brother-in-law Robert, uh, he, he's a hobbyist in bonsai. He has a lot of bonsai. He and my sister at their home in Chicago. My parents. Um, they lived right in the in the heart of uptown in Chicago, uh, and uh, the rectory next door to the Buddhist Temple of Chicago was a, a three flat. It was a brick three flat, and so it's a, a really sort of an inner city, urban neighborhood. But on their front porch, in the second floor, that porch there, there was an area maybe about. Six, seven feet deep, and then maybe about ten feet wide. Uh, they had a garden, okay, with rocks and gravel and a lot of plants, okay, and many of them were bonsai. Huh? And it was uh, an annual thing when uh, winter started to come. They would take all their plants inside, and my mom had a tatami uh, tea room in their apartment on the second floor and and uh she taught uh, the the tea and had students and so forth but the, all these plants would be brought in uh inside for the cold Chicago winters then of course spring early spring there they brought out to the, the front porch and you know on the second floor there <laughs> I, and I was thinking about all of these memories and I remember uh, you know, uh, non-attachment. You know that sounds like a, that's a that's a crucial teaching, and yet so misleading, easy to be misleading. Non-attachment. What you're not supposed to care about things. What you know? Uh, maybe a nice uh, sort of a synonym for non-attachment, and a more positive expression would be constant change. Dynamic, constant change. This is the way reality is, and you better flow with reality if you want to lead a natural life or enlightened living. Don't call it enlightenment as a noun. Call it enlightened living. (laughs) It's more dynamic. It's a process. It's always a work in progress. Huh? Now, I remember a article that my father wrote. See, at the Buddhist Summer Chicago, they have a summer festival. Okay, uh, it's it's their annual fundraiser, and uh, uh, they have, uh, of course, ethnic food, and they have um, several day affair on the weekend, and they have uh, cultural exhibits. Okay, 
uh, judo, kendo, and iaido, martial arts uh, demonstrations, and uh, <clears throat> in the in the chapel area, uh, they, they turn it into a uh, depending on the theme of each year's festival, but every year they have they invite the local bonsai teachers to you know provide some some bonsai plants for exhibit and uh one of my father's articles he said he he commented on one one teacher's uh, exhibit that had flower arrangement you know and there's there's sort of a principle of of uh uh three tiers or three positions uh sort of like uh the earth and heaven and you know I mean, it's kind of an idea of of a philosophy behind the art of flower arranging. But this article was, my father was struck by, he was looking at one of these bonsai at the summer festival. And there was this, it was beautiful, but right on the top in a prominent place was a dead leaf. It was a natural dead leaf and the teacher didn't take it off, left it there. And he thought, you know, this is nature. You know, there's a great, tremendous teaching there. Uh, Wow. I I was thinking also about uh, uh, Alex Cochlear. He he just sort of in passing mentioned that his cat is named En. His cat is named Enzo. And you know, (laughs) I had to really chuckle at that because now I don't know if this is the situation but how he chose that name but there is that uh, novel and uh, book and it's been made into a movie that's playing right now in the theaters about the art of racing in the rain and about a dog named Enzo and in fact um, uh, one of our relatives uh, lives in uh, San Luis Obispo the Smelters um, they got a dog on, on relatively recently, and their dog is named Enzo. You know, after that dog's name in uh, in that in that book and in the movie, um, and uh, uh, the Enzo Alex Cocchio's cat, he, you know, he mentioned cats. Cats are pretty good gardeners, you know that. They chew up plants. <laughs> I don't know what good means in this case, but they like to uh, chew up plants. And I had a, quite a few experiences of my own where cats destroyed some plants. Our cat, I had an avocado. I, I milked this Dharma teaching for many years. It was, it was a bottomless, filled with teachings all the time. And birds, I try to, I'll try to summarize this up but one time many years ago but I, I grew a avocado plant and I don't know back in the 60s or 70s it was quite it was a fad sort of where you would take a big avocado seed and you stick four toothpicks into it and then you put it in a glass mayonnaise jar filled with water you know a used one and then so that half of the avocado seed was in the water and then the white roots would come out 
and the shoot would come up and you'd have an avocado plant. A lot of people did this, you know, uh, and I did too. And it was, uh, I had to wait a long time. It, it takes a long time. I said, gee, nothing's happening. And I thought to myself, gee, maybe this is a defective uh, avocado seed. It's not, nothing's happening. But, hey, patience. Kashanti, one of the six parameters, patience. But then the, the white roots came out and the shoot came out. And then it was about three or four little shiny, tiny green leaves on it. Okay. And I had it on the kitchen counter. And we had a cat. I didn't know they were good gardeners. But one morning I came down the kitchen and it was just chopped off. Uh, he had chewed the stalk and the stalk with the leaves was on the dirt in the pot. And uh, the rest of the plant just looked like a, a chopstick sticking in the stick, stuck in the dirt there. You know, I said, oh, man. So uh, anyway, I I put it outside. Uh, it's springtime, and a few weeks later, Adrian, my wife, said, "Hey, did you see our avocado plant?" I said, "No." So I went to take a look at it, and uh, it was a funny-looking plant because, like I said, it looked like a uh, a chopstick stuck in the dirt, but near the top, from the side came out sideways a, a new shoot and it had some leaves on it. I said, wow, you know, <laughs> you, uh, and I learned a lot from, th from this example in a lot of ways. Um, uh, <clears throat> but thinking about, you know, when you talk to a, uh, professional landscape person and my father was a uh, in Japanese tradition um, the society is such that uh, occupations run in families because you have to everything so closed and tight you can't make your way to make a living you know unless you follow your family's tradition okay so whatever the whatever the field is, it runs in families because you need to make those contacts and you you benefit. That's the only way you could could really forge yourself. You know, in America, it's hey independence and you can try. It's all wide open. But in a very traditional thousands of years society, like like in the East, okay. So many ministers, Buddhist ministers, came from ministerial families. They had it, it, the fan, the temple was owned by the family and it would provide the family's occupation, you know, I mean, uh, financial thing, but my father was, uh, was different in that he was, we didn't come from a, Kobosas didn't come from a, uh, you know, long line of ministerial families. Some Japanese ministers, they come and say, Oh, there might be 16th generation um, minister, you know, but my father was the first, <laughs> He he got it was a calling to him. It wasn't an occupation. Hmm? Um, and uh, eh, uh, uh, 
to to look at the, how ministers are 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 trained. A lot of times you say, well, why do they wear black or why is their head shaved or you know the whole uh, there there's a monasterial system, right? In a monastery and they're monks, and it's based on a renunciation model. That is, you renounce lay life. Okay. You live in a monastery and you have all these precepts and you don't get married, you don't have any, you know, interaction with females, okay? It was very patriarchal men in the monasteries and so forth, okay? Uh, if a lay person, uh, community, ethnic community supported a certain, you know, uh, monks in living there and uh, and if the one of the women was going to serve food to the monks, they would always place it down in front of them. They would never go from hand to hand because the monk they might they might accidentally touch each other's hands. This is how how orthodox it could be. Hmm? Um, but the Dharma pruning, uh, shave your head so that you're not so attached to oh you know nice hairdo okay. And we're wearing black, huh? just kind of subdued, no bright colors. All in terms of the non-attachment to self-centered ego and all these things, you know, and how to prune things. And when you talk to uh, <clears throat> uh, landscapers, wow, well, you know, I have a garden and I and I patronize different nurseries, plant nurseries. Uh, in this area, and one time I, I was telling people a certain species of a tree or something, it's a dwarf. I said, well, it doesn't matter to me. I don't need uh, something that was uh, bred to be a dwarf fruit tree or something like this. You could take any tree, and but the way you prune it, you know, you, you shape it and everything. And then the nursery person said, yeah, I know. I, I try to tell these these novice customers, okay, you know, about pruning, and they said, oh, you mean cut the cut the tree down, <laughs> you know, or something like this. So any, just a hobby, just a regular home gardener, they sort of know, you know, uh, you can cut back something, and it's healthier for the plant. You cut them back, okay, uh, especially for the winter, and then in the spring, boom. That's, you know, that's, you, you do this all the time. But for uh, it's sort of counterintuitive because if you're not a gardener, you say, "Well, you mean oh, cut, cut these? <laughs> it's hard to cut it." Okay. Um, and the Dharma's the same way. Huh? Dharma scissors, man. Dharma pruning. Uh, <laughs> this looks so beautiful. How am I gonna cut it? Cut it back? Cut it away? Huh? Talk about. Non-attachment. Talk about naturalness, constant change, uh, all possibilities. Uh, you know, beginner's mind. Everything's open. Uh, there's tremendous nature. Is a tremendous teacher. Well, well, that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time. Keep growing, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.